This is the Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Ingrid Hegel, who is an assistant professor of economics at LMU Munich. Today we are going to talk about her paper, Talent Hoarding in Organizations. Ingrid, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Ingrid, I know what organizations are. What is talent hoarding? So how I describe it often is talent hoarding is managers' tendency to try to keep the best people in their team. And so you can think about this, you know, when good people leave the team, go to a different team, managers often have to try to replace them, but they often don't have the incentives because they don't benefit if the good people are in a new team. So they often have a natural tendency to try to keep good people. And this is, they may be obviously good for them, it's bad from the organization perspective because uh, highly able workers who will benefit the organization a lot when they are promoted are not promoted or are promoted later as a result of the managers trying to keep them in their team. Exactly. So we know that managers are really important for firm productivity, for making decisions. So organizations really care about identifying talented workers and assigning them to higher level jobs where they're more productive, they have more responsibility. But they often, because it's difficult to observe work or talent or quality to often rely on managers to identify talents in their team and encourage them to pursue promotions. But often, you know, there are no incentives for these managers. You don't get a bonus if you let the best software engineer in your team leave the team and go to a different part of the company. So you are saying that these managers may want to prevent their subordinates, especially their like high ability subordinates from being promoted and therefore moving somewhere else and not benefiting the manager's team. How can they do that? What are the mechanisms through which conceptually they may be able to prevent this promotion and hoard talent? So when you talk to employees, I did this as part of my paper, but there's also anecdotal evidence around the world in countries like the United States or Germany. Employees talk about a range of different you know, approaches that managers can take. So one thing is to reduce the visibility of good workers. So for example, not let a good worker participate in a high visibility project or training and reduce the public signals of worker quality so other parts of the room don't know who the talented workers are. But there also might be, managers might discourage or even threaten workers to apply or leave the team for a promotion. There might be retaliation to try to keep workers in the team. And so these are the most common ways of talent hoarding. Okay, so I'm going to repeat these two challenges here because I think they are quite important. Number one, somehow make the CV worse of the employee worse than it would have been otherwise. Okay, reducing the visibility, you know, like conditional on the a worker applying, reducing the chances that the worker will get the job because they don't have the ability to prove that they are high ability. Number two, directly discourage the applications through, you know, maybe threatening with retaliation, etc. I have never seen any paper in economics documenting the phenomenon of talent hoarding. Uh, this is the uh, first objective of the paper. Is there anything else that you want to accomplish in this paper? Yeah, I think the, the first objective, as you say, is really to document that talent hoarding is important and it often occurs, but also to understand what the consequences are on the location of workers and maybe also between group differences. So one of the key results in the paper is that talent hoarding exacerbates gender inequality in the firm because, you know, how internal labor markets are structured might not work for everyone equally. And so I try to want to understand, you know, what systems do firms have in place that's open the black box of promotions within firms. And let's look if these systems, you know, work equally well for different people in the firm. And the second objective in that respect, I guess, is to 
capture this idea that we were mentioning earlier, uh, which is that there are workers that potentially could be promoted and do really well, you know, in their new jobs. But as a result of talent hoarding, this is not happening and the organization is suffering from that. Yes, you could think about different ways how talent hoarding could lead to efficiency costs. In the paper, because this is the first paper to provide empirical evidence, I really focus on this allocation margin. But I also discussed, you know, at the end that there might be other margins that might avoid. So for example, workers who are subject to talent hoarding are 30% more likely to say, I'm going to try to leave the firm. Like, you know, you might lose good workers. Or some workers say, you know, as part of talent hoardings, managers don't let me go to high profile trainings or workshops so that, you know, they might underinvest in human capital. And so these are these other efficiency costs suggesting that what I'm showing in the paper, just looking at allocation is probably a lower bound of the efficiency costs of talent hoarding. But I think it's because of how the literature, you know, looks at how important higher level positions are, I think it's a first order margin. So you mentioned in the paper and also consistently with what we have been discussing that talent hoarding involves hidden actions. That is, the, you, you're going to use like a data set from a company and all, but there is no variable in your data set that takes value one when there is talent hoarding and value zero otherwise, correct? It's something that you are going to like detect from an indirect way by looking at the patterns of the data in this way or another. So there Therefore, it is important to understand what are the patterns that we would expect to observe in the data um, that are consistent with talent hoarding, maybe not so consistent with other things, but but at least at the very first, consistent with talent hoarding. You have like a small theory model uh, at the beginning to provide certain predictions about what will happen to applications, to promotion, maybe separately for different types of workers when there is talent hoarding. How does the model work and what does tell you. Before I answer this, can I go back to the first statement you made when you started talking just now? You were saying that, you know, it's difficult to observe talent hoarding because by definition, it's often hidden actions. I think that's one of the reasons why people haven't studied it because it's really difficult to empirically measure talent hoarding. In the paper, I tried to kind of get at this in two ways. So the first way, and we can talk about this later, is like, you know, thinking about a new identification strategy to measure it indirectly. The second one is really trying to come up with the best direct measure we can. And as you said, you know, managers often have these two, two strategies. One strategy is try to reduce information, like make the CVU worse. The second one is retaliation. So in the paper, I do use a measure, like two ratings of employees to see if I can find if managers on average understate um, public sickness of worker talent. You know, it's not the like a very direct measure, but it really gets pretty close trying to show that managers seem to try to understate these worker talent measures. And that gets us a talent rating. So just in the model, I outlined like a simple framework of talent hoarding where we have two agents, workers and managers. And I try to understand, you know, how do workers get promoted? You know, in real life, many firms actually require workers to actively apply in order to get promoted. So you will see a promotion if a worker applies and get hires. And workers are going to decide whether to apply if they expect the benefits of applying are higher than the expected costs. And so, for example, if you're worried about retaliation, you may not apply. From a manager perspective, Managers kind of decide whether they want to hoard a worker, yes or no. That depends on different parameters. So, for example, if the worker is really good, losing the worker is going to be really costly for team productivity and therefore for managers' utility. Similarly, if it's hard to replace a worker, for example, because you know teams are small or it's like just difficult to to lose them, managers are going to hoard more. And you could also think about that some managers have higher utility costs of talent hoarding. When you think in real life, you know if you work together with someone every single day, it might be 
really costly, you know, to try to keep them in their job, even though you know it's bad for them. And so, you know, managers are going to decide whether to hoard a worker, yes or no. And that's going to affect the workers' decision rule, whether to apply um, or not. And that helps me to look in the data, what you said, that the predictions, because I can look how the number and the quality of applicants varies depending if a manager hoards talent, yes or no. But I want to emphasize that in the small model that you have, the channel through which the managers are hoarding talent is that they are decreasing the likelihood of success when the worker applies. Because applying has a cost that obviously discourages the applications. But in terms of the two channels that we were describing earlier, through which uh, talent hoarding takes place conceptually, one of them is making the CV worse. And the second is threatening with retaliation if you apply. In your model, you are modeling the first channel as opposed to the second channel. You are making the CV worse, which means that, you know, the potential new employers in a different department of the firm or something are not going to see you as that good. Therefore, they are less likely to give you the job. And that discourages you from applying. Yes, I think in theory, you could model it either way. What I'm trying to do in this paper is, you know, it really focuses on providing the first empirical evidence that talent hoarding exists and that it has meaningful um, consequences. So this is just to outline and, you know, like try to motivate why I look at these things. But I think in follow-up work, definitely people could try to even distinguish these channels and think about predictions that would let you get at them, you know, which channel is more important than the other. So from the model, you have like a number of predictions. You know, some of them are obviously relatively immediate. So high productivity workers experience more talent hoarding. Workers that are more difficult to replace experience more talent hoarding because the manager is more afraid of losing them. As you said, maybe some managers have a lower cost of doing that. So they're going to do more of it and so on. The prediction that high ability workers experience more talent hoarding makes a lot of sense, right? Like if I am have a terrible worker, I want to get rid of him as quickly as possible. And also it's difficult to make a terrible CV worse, no? <laughs> like I cannot hide anything, you know, that will make the, the worker worse. But if my worker is really good, then it is that I have more opportunities to make him worse. I was emphasizing these two channels because I am wondering what is the extent to which this prediction about the fact that high ability workers experience more talent hoarding depends on you having gone through that first channel as opposed to the other channel of retaliation. And this is for the following reason. Imagine that the retaliation at the talent hoarding operates through the channel of the manager saying, if you apply and I catch you, I'm going to make your life hell. Mm -hmm. Of course, the worker that applies knows that this is going to happen only if they apply and they are unsuccessful. Because they are successful, they're out of there. There is very little I can do to them, you know? This implies that a worker with extremely high ability who's going to get the promotion for sure is going to be less scared of that threat than, say, a middle ability worker, in which case it is not as clear that the super high ability worker will experience more talent hoarding. I think this could go either way. And, you know, in my empirical results, I actually look at this retaliation channel because when a manager rotates, right, the information, the first channel, that information can't really adjust it fast, right? Like maybe if I tell you I'm going to move next quarter, you have a short window of time where you don't have to fear talent hoarding. Even if I now start correctly reporting your talent, it might take time for people in the firm to learn, you know, for, the, for them to update. So a lot of my empirical results are really up at the second channel. 
retaliation. And there I do find that, you know, even applying for promotions this, like in the firm, only a quarter of job applications are successful. So even if you're high ability, there's always still the risk of not getting the job. So I think even for those people, there is the fear of retaliation. And you do see when you look at the characteristics of marginal applicants, that people, even very good people and the talent hoarding, they don't apply. Um, and so I think even for them, retaliation seems to matter. Okay, we have gone already a little bit through what your Empica strategy is, uh, what measures you have. Let's just uh, tackle it head on. What is the firm that you study? I know you're not going to tell us the, the actual name or anything, but you know, a few broad characteristics of the firm that you study. What is the data that you have from this firm? So I study a very large multinational firm that operates in many countries around the world. The firm has over 200,000 workers. It's one of the largest manufacturers in Europe. And one of the key advantages is that it uh, employs a range of different occupations. So you can think about engineering or IT jobs, HR or marketing. So we have a very broad range of different occupations. And many large firms you know, around the world in the last maybe 10 years really implement these active application systems. So if a worker wants to get promoted, they have to go to the online job portal at the firm, find a job opening, apply, and get hired. And that really allows me to see if talent hoarding deters applications of workers who would have been successful, who could have gotten a promotion, and then maybe performed better. So I think it's a nice feature of the firm, which is pretty common among large organizations in many different countries. And obviously, you have demographics and career characteristics, position characteristics, wages, and so on. You were mentioning earlier that you have a measure of talent hoarding. This has to do with the fact that the managers of workers in a team, they write a rating that is only observed by the worker. And this is called, I mean, you call this a performance rating, right? Like I tell you whether you are doing well or not, but nobody else is going to observe it. And then there is another rating that is public. You call it a potential ratings that is for everybody to see. So you are saying, if I keep giving you very high private ratings, but very low public ratings, that means that even though you are good, I'm trying to hide how good you are from everybody else. That would be your measure, correct? Exactly. So many organizations have these two ratings where the performance ratings are really meant to give feedback to the worker. How well did you do in the past? And at this firm, even if you apply to a different position in a different team, that team will not have access to your past performance ratings. So it's really the manager and the worker who know this. There's this other rating, the potential rating. They're meant to inform the team who would be good in a higher level position. And these potential ratings are widely shared. HR, you know, make short lists, they talk about them. And so one, like they really, they differ in the visibility across the firm. One is only known by the worker. The other one is like widely circulated. Of course, they do measure two different things. But what I show in the paper is that on average, looking at the difference really tells us something. If some work managers on average really understate worker visibility. And I can even look at the workers who actually then get promoted later on. And I can check if their managers gave a correct potential rating, where they're really not good at the higher level, or if it looks like, you know, this is talent hoarding, they try to give a lower rating than was correct. And this seems to be really the case and seems to work out. So this is, you know, on the face of it, really capturing a little bit of the idea of talent hoarding. It's, however, still the case that you don't have a variable that takes value one and zero, because for instance, it could be that, you know, I, as a manager, I'm really afraid of conflict and I don't really want to be candid with my workers about how 
terrible they are, you know? So I gave, I give them great private ratings, but these are the ones that are wrong, not the, you know, not the potential ones. But definitely if there is somebody who over many periods has a big discrepancy between those, you mix that together with the other information that you mentioned, it's, it's really getting a little bit at that. A second measure of talent hoarding through the decreased visibility, making your CV worse and so on. What is it? Exactly. So, you know, when we compare performance and potential ratings, as we discussed, you know, the, these ratings are not meant to capture talent hoarding. The second thing that I do is like really hinging on the idea that if you talent hoarding really successfully, there should be less information about these workers available in the firm. In many firms, you know, high level positions, they have succession list nominations. So if someone, you know, the vice president retires, who's going to fill that position? And in my sample, 20% of firms across different occupations, across different hierarchy levels have such a measure. And um, in order to fill these succession lists, HR employees try to come up with ideas of people across the firm who could be good successors. So, you know, if you're really successful at hiding people, there should be less information about them and they should be less likely to make it to these succession lists. And so, you know, in addition, in addition to comparing performance and potential ratings, I compare the probability that employees make it to a succession list, conditional on the characteristics, the qualifications, performance rates. And I find very similar results, you know, suggesting that it's really about differences in information. So if there is time hoarding, the managers who consistently give terrible potential ratings and whose employees do not appear in this succession list, definitely prime candidates to be the ones that are doing the talent hoarding. But you have another way of getting whether talent hoarding is taking place in the firm at all or not. What is the empirical strategy that you use to show that? So I look at manager rotations. And the idea is that if a manager tells the team in advance that they're about to leave a team, the position, there's a short window of opportunity where the team doesn't have to worry about talent hoarding. Because as a manager, if you know that you're going to switch the team, you don't mind if the good people leave because you're not going to have to replace them. You know, you're not going to suffer from lower pressure activity from the team. Similarly, the team should also not expect any retaliation from you. I can check that in the data and I see really once a manager announces to the team that they're going to leave, applications more than double and they go back to baseline as soon as the new manager comes in. So it's really about these manager rotations that allows me to test for talent hoarding without requiring a direct measure of your managerial talent hoarding. Let me establish this a little bit more technically. You have a panel data set of workers and quarters, okay? The standard, you know, individuals and time. And the dependent variable is whether employee I apply to any position or many positions uh, on quarter T. And then you have individual fixed effects, time fixed effects, maybe other stuff. The critical thing that you have there is the leads and lags in the window around the manager of that employee I being rotated himself, okay? You don't know exactly when the employees learned that their current boss was going to move on, being rotated, but maybe on average a couple of quarters or three quarters before it actually happens. And with these leads and lags, you can see how applications are reacting to the future rotation of the manager. And you find that they start going up a couple 
couple of quarters or three quarters before the MNI rotates and do they come down immediately or do they continue up? What happens there? Yeah, actually, it's really helpful. So, you know, starting one to two quarters after rotation happens, applications go back down. I think that's really helpful to distinguish talent hoarding from other potential channels. So, for example, if you think that you applied away because you felt very loyal to your manager or, you know, you had a really good match effect, you might just still apply away once a new manager comes in because you're still missing your old manager. You're still not as happy. But with talent hoarding, you should really think about talent hoarding, you know, being alleviated only for this short period of time when there's the switch happening. As soon as a new manager comes in, there should also have an incentive to hoard talent. There should have an incentive to retaliate. So workers should stop applying again once a new manager comes in. So, so you are saying that talent hoarding is switch off when the current manager is going to leave, but then it switches on again when the new manager arrives, whereas alternative explanations as to why you may want to apply more when your current manager leaves, such as you felt loyal and now you're not loyal anymore, or you had a good match, but now you don't have a good match anymore. All these things should not be switched on again when the new manager comes, but they should continue at a higher level. So we have we need like a theory to explain both applications going up and then going down, which is what talent hoarding does. Exactly. Or you could also think, you know, maybe this is a role model effect or, you know, your manager rotating makes it very salient to you that promotions are possible. But then it would be weird that this effect of information or salience would only be there for a few quarters. And as soon as a new manager comes in, you would stop applying again. And so like the short term nature is really in line with talent hoarding, but not in line with many other explanations. One thing that I was wondering in that respect is that doing things in your in your computer that are not about your job, they take some time. Like if I want to book a plane ticket or find a new job, obviously, you know, I need to search, see what is around, wonder whether that would be a good position for me. Maybe I have to discuss with my spouse in case the job is somewhere else, you know. So one thing that is happening when the old boss is about to leave and the new one hasn't arrived yet is that maybe there is wor- less work around because the, the team is not really being monitored very, very heavily, given that the boss doesn't care anymore <laughs> what is happening, you know, to that team. The new one hasn't arrived yet. So there is a little bit of free time there. There is a window there in which I can do online shopping and I can also check for potential opportunities internally. That's a good point. One thing that helps to understand this context is that applications are really easy to do at the firm. So on average, it takes us in five minutes to apply for a job. Every job vacancy is posted to a job portal. And the only thing that employees have to do is basically to fill out their name, their email address, and attach their CV that's already stored in the system. So, you know, applying itself isn't that costly in terms of time. But, you know, it is true that what a big thing that changes during this transition period is the fear of retaliation um, when the manager doesn't care anymore because they're about to leave. Just to say it once again, in terms of uh, capturing the two channels through Italian Hardware may be taking place, here, this empirical strategy is really getting at the retaliation, the you know deterring of application channel rather than the making the CV worse because when the old manager is leaving, he cannot suddenly make the CV good again, right? So this is the, the second channel that is being affected here. You said that there are maybe like a potential alternative explanations for this like spiking of, of applications. Maybe the, you know, the fact that they come down is helpful to eliminate at least some of them. 
Are there additional maybe heterogeneity results that can also help to disentangle the talent hoarding explanation from others? Yeah. So there are a couple of additional explanations. So one is correlated team level shocks. So maybe the case that the entire team finds out, you know, the, the, they're like not good working conditions or this location is going to be closed soon. Or maybe the entire team just finishes a project and everyone applies away. And so the manager leaving the team is not, you know, the causal effect you know, that gets talent hoarding started, but basically everybody does it and the manager does, does it first. So what a couple of things I do in the paper, for example, is I look at placebo events, events when a manager tries to rotate, but they don't get the job within the firm. And I find no effect of this unsuccessful attempted transition. I also look at co-worker rotations instead of manager rotations to see, is it really just about someone in the team leaving? And I find that these co-worker rotations are, have much, much smaller effects, even though the co-workers are much more similar to the workers than the manager. You also mentioned alternative explanations as loyalty, match effects, role model effects. So a couple of things I can do in the paper, for example, with respect to loyalty, we usually think that it grows over time. Someone who's worked with the manager for five years has probably more loyalty than someone who just started working with the manager. I find no differences by how long it's been with the manager. With match effects, you could think maybe if the manager was able to hire me, then there should be more scope for match effect than you, if you've been an incumbent before the manager came. I don't find any differences. I also look at external transitions. I think that's really helpful to understand the results. If it's about loyalty or match effects, what happens is that when your manager leaves, the utility of your current position just reduces and you should be more likely to apply to any type of job within the firm or outside of the firm. I don't observe applications to other firms, but I do observe transitions out of firms. So what I look is basically before a manager rotates, people are really similar in whether they leave the team for an internal or an external transition. But once the manager leaves, this only increases internal transitions and not external transitions, which is not in line at all with loyalty or match effects, but very much in line with talent. So I want to go back to the description of the regression that you're running. Panel data, employees and quarters, we have a left-hand side and a right-hand side. The right-hand side is what we said, the window around the manager rotation. Clearly there, maybe other stuff potentially can be happening, but, but definitely it makes a lot of sense that this is a window at which the incentives for talent hoarding have gone down. The left-hand side is applications and there, Applications can be driven by, you know, lots of things. Obviously, talent hoarding may be one of them or not, but lots of things. Now, you mentioned earlier, and we have gone a couple of times through it, the fact that you have a direct, imperfect, but but a somewhat direct measure of talent hoarding, which is, you know, as a as a simplification, the differential between the potential ratings and the performance ratings. Right? So I know that they are not in the same scale and everything, but you know, let's say the difference between these two things or so the residual from a regression of one on the other. In principle, you could put that on the left-hand side because this is also a variable that is, you are saying, you said earlier, affected by talent hoarding and therefore should react to the switching off of the incentives for talent hoarding. You know, I know that maybe these evaluations take place only once in a while, et cetera, et cetera, but given sufficient number of sufficient observations, which you have a lot of, you have 300,000 300, observations in your data set. 
you should be able to put this in the hand side and see whether the manager that don't have an incentive to lie anymore becomes suddenly more candid. They underrate less those individuals that they were underrating before. I think conceptually, I very much agree. I think the advantage of looking at applications is that it is very high frequency. And, you know, the performance of potential ratings to often only happen once a year. And, you know, so there you can't really look about how it changes over time. Um, and so I, in the paper, I choose not to just not to push the data too much. Okay, so now you have a, a first part, there is talent hoarding. The second part of the paper is like an attempt to measure the consequences of talent hoarding. Obviously, you are going to undercount this because, as you mentioned earlier, there are many different channels, you know, through which talent hoarding could have bad consequences. In addition, you are capturing it somewhat indirectly, but you have some evidence on this. For this, you use like a two-stage least squares model. Can you describe how you um, build that model and what is it useful for? Yes. And so what I want to study is whether, you know, what are the consequences of talent hoarding? So I'm going to look at the employees who would have applied if talent hoarding wouldn't be there, uh, would have not applied if talent hoarding would be there, and only applied because the manager rotates. Because in that time period, as we discussed, talent hoarding reduces and, you know, they feel less retaliation. So I'm going to use manager rotation as an instrument for applications. I'm going to be interested what happens to these employees, how successful would those applications would have been, both, you know, looking at hiring, but then also at their performance in the higher level positions. And that gives me a very clear interpretation, you know, what are we losing by talent hoarding? Do we have, are we deterring employees who would have been successful getting high level jobs and who would have been more productive in these higher level positions? How does the two-stage square model work? What is the first stage? What is the second stage? Yes. So the first stage is I'm looking at how managed rotations affect applications. And I'm going to use my very large set of controls to try to make sure I'm comparing similar MREs. Then I'm going to uh, see, I'm going to instrument four applications with manager rotations. And I'm going to look at hiring and at the probability to get hired and outperform the team at a higher level. And so what I find is that when a manager rotates, applications for promotions increase you know, almost double, they increase by 123%. And employees are similarly likely than average employees to get hired. But, uh, you know, there's a, a substantial set of employees who wouldn't apply in presence of talent hoarding, who actually would get these higher level jobs and would outperform their team. And outperform the team, you can think about this as, you know, a graduate student who gets their first AP position and in the first semester actually publishes more paper than the other colleagues. You know, it's like a pretty high bar to clear. But I do find that like, I think it's a nice comparison by comparing everyone in the team at the higher level and seeing if the people who would have not applied without the manager rotation, if they would have gotten a higher performance rating. I'm going to repeat here the structure of the two-stage square model, if you if you don't mind, because I think that like it's a use of this type of models that I've never seen before. <laughs> okay, So therefore, I think that it's incredibly interesting. So typically, we want instruments because our independent variable is somewhat endogenous. So we want some exogenous variation in our independent variable to see what the causal effect of the independent variable, the X, uh, has on the dependent variable, the Y, right? And then we're using the instrument to create that exogenous variation. 
So here, the second stage is the effect of hiring or promotions on applications. Now, we know that the causal effect is positive, right? Like there is no doubt that if you apply, you are going to be more likely to get the job. In fact, if you don't apply, it's impossible that you will get the job, right? So that is not the question here. You're not supposed to in any use of two stately squares that I have ever seen. You are not actually interested in the causal effect of uh, applications on promotions. You're interested in something else. So you are using the regression that we mentioned earlier, which is the window around the rotation of the manager as an instrument for the applications. Mm-hmm. You discuss that you need like the independence assumption and the exclusion restriction and everything. I don't want to get into this. The assumption is that the only channel through which that window affects being hired is through the application. That's fine. Okay. Now, the estimate that you get from this like, two-stately square model is 0.15. That is, the effect of applying on being hired is 0.15. Now, we know from two-stately squares that this is the latte, the local average treatment effect. Okay, so this tells us, you know, if we have the compliance, which are the people that have applied because there is a manager rotation, but wouldn't have applied in the absence of a manager rotation, what is the causal effect of applications on promotions for them, right? And obviously it's positive as for anybody's positive. One thing that I was wondering is in terms of looking at this 0.15, why is it not higher than the average success rate for, you know, a random person? Uh, in in this firm. Like the average success rate is 17%, which means that the compliers are less likely to get the job condition on applying than the average person. Not statistically different, but you know, but not higher, let's say. Now, the way that we described talent hoarding earlier and one of the predictions of your model was that it is the high ability ones who are talent hoarded. These are the ones that suddenly explode in their applications because the manager is not hoarding anymore. Shouldn't they be much more likely to get the job than the average person that applies? Yeah, that's a great description. Thank you so much. I think the whole objective here is to think about whether talent hoarding has detrimental consequences, right? It might be that managers hoard people who would have never gotten the job, and then it's not that bad. So I think what the paper shows is the people who are hoarded, who don't apply because of talent hoarding, they would have been similarly likely to get a job who apply right now. So hoarding them is, you know, a high stakes action. It is true it is similar. It's not higher. But, you know, the people do apply to different positions. It depends on the active applicant pool. So there are many factors that may affect hiring probabilities. When I look at the characteristics of these marginal applicants who only apply if managers rotate, I see that they're very positively selected. So they have many more characteristics. And very important, when we look how well they're doing, once they get promoted, we actually see, you know, that they're outperforming their teams, you know, like a lot of those people. And so it suggests that, you know, there is, there are talent stuck at lower levels because of talent hoarding who would have done really, really well. So the other important thing that you use this talent hoarding for is in terms of distinguishing different types of groups that are more or less affected by this phenomenon, especially in comparing men versus women. How do you do this and what do you find there? So the motivation here is you no know, talent hoarding, what we learned from the survey is that talent hoarding really works through interpersonal interactions. You know, I threaten people, I discourage people, I maybe 
beg people to stay. And what we know from gender differences from other research is that there's a big chance that men and women might react to this differently. So what I'm going to do is like I'm going to look differently at men and women. I'm going to see how managed rotations affect applications, hiring probabilities for promotions, and then productivity in terms of performance ratings at higher levels. What I find is that the effect of talent hoarding is much more detrimental for women. They're more deterred from applying. Women at the margin, so women who would not have applied in absence of a manager rotation, are twice as likely than men to actually land a promotion. And they're three times as likely to land a promotion outperform the team in a higher level. What this means is that higher quality women are deterred from applying and landing promotions than men because of talent hoarding. So for them, the consequences are much, much larger. What about in terms of the earlier measure that you mentioned, which is the differential between performance ratings and potential ratings. Is, is there a di bigger differential there for women relative to men? So I don't find any evidence that managers treat men and women differently. So it's not the case that, you know, if an employee is a woman, the manager reduces the public signal more than for men. What I find is that men and women seem to react to the same level of talent voting differently. And here also this, uh, the survey of the employees really helps. So I ran a survey over 50% of employees in the firm participated. And one thing that is really striking is that women are almost 30% more likely to say that the manager's opinion is really important when they make career progression decisions. And that, you know, a good relationship with the manager is the most important thing about their job. Suggesting that, you know, knowing that your manager might be unhappy if you apply to a different position or knowing that your manager tries to talent board might affect women's application decisions more than You find also there that the compliers are better among the women than among the men. Exactly. I find like very, very big differences. So women who don't apply because of talent hoarding are extremely positively selected. If you look at the range of different qualifications, for example, their, their educational qualifications, the performance ratings they got in the past, etc., suggesting that the extent of misallocation that happens because of talent hoarding is much larger when we look at women than when we look at men. I mentioned earlier that this was like a, an unusual uh, objective of a two-stage square model. I have to point out here that that it seems that a big objective of the two-stage square model other than measure the causal effect is to identify who the compliers are, right? That's like a big objective there. It's like a core objective of, of this type of model. How do you know who the compliers are? Is this like the, the ratio of the first stage for a particular subgroup relative to the overall first stage or? Exactly. So I'm using the 2SLS model and it basically lets me look at the late, so the local average treatment of men and women. And so you can use, um, you can look at compliant characteristics. And what I find in, in the paper, I also conducted a Becker outcome test, which lets me look at men and women at the margin who would not have applied in the absence of a manager rotation. And I can compare their marginal probability to get hired and the marginal probability to outperform the team if they would get hired. What I find is that women at the margin are much better than men. And so I think that's a very nice way of the setup to just really compare who's more affected by talent work. So the way that I understood that Baker outcome tests were was the following. So we have, let's say, men and women, and we are diff putting different thresholds uh, to promote them. So we are much happier, let's say, to promote a mediocre man relative to a mediocre woman. So the woman has to be pretty talented. Then we look at then conditional on having been promoted. We would expect that if we have different thresholds, 
the promoted women outperform the promoted men, right? So just looking at conditional and promotion, comparing their performance there is a test of whether we have different thresholds in advance. But here, your analysis is never conditional. It's always, you're always using the interaction of having been promoted and performing better than the team average. But here, I think the important condition is whether you applied. So I look at men and women who only applied because the manager rotated. So when we switched off talent boarding, and then I'm just going to look, how do they compare with respect to the outcome? And, you know, one outcome is the hiring probability. And, you know, that, that itself is very interesting, right? And then you could be worried, you know, maybe women are hired more not because they're better, but because there's affirmative action going on, like some other things of labor demand. So then I'm looking at this difference in are you are you more likely to actually outperform the team if you got hired? Just as a way to back up, you know, like hiring is important, but what we really care about is, you know, would they have been productive in these positions? Anything that you want to mention that I haven't asked you about? I think an important insight from the paper is, you know, to open the black box about how firms, you know, organize the internal labor market and how well the internal labor market works, especially how it works for different groups of employees. And I think that's really helpful to point out, you know, that for women, talent hoarding has much more uh, larger and more negative consequences than for men. And we see in the paper that this has really big effects of differences in representation, differences in pay. And so by alleviating talent hoarding, firms can both increase efficiency, you know, allocate talent to higher level positions, but also tackle equity, you know, reduce the differences in labor market outcomes. And so it's usually we have this trade-off, right? Either one. But here it's really that firms can do both by, you know, reducing talent boarding. Thank you, Ingrid, for talking to me in the podcast. Thanks for having me. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to any other papers that we may have discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. 